Welcome, everyone, to the Progress City Radio Hour, another town hall episode. My name is Jeff Crawford. I'm joined by my brother, Michael. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing great today. I'm very excited for our town hall this month. Yeah, it's been a while since we've had a town hall. Uh, I mean, we had the Christmas party and all that, but uh, we're back with a bang. Michael, who are we talking to today? Well, I'm really excited for this one. Uh, We're speaking to Mr. Tim Delaney, a uh, Walt Disney Imagineering all-star for several decades. Uh, Worked on, oh, everything from Epcot to Paris to Hong Kong to, well, just about everything. So... Uh, really excited to hear his recollections and uh, you know he's just a font of information darn it he is I mean he came on board in a time of big time transition we've talked a lot about that time in the mid to late 70s and you know a new generation of Imagineer was coming on and a lot of the classic old timers were still there so uh, a lot of stories for him to tell us today Absolutely. So let's dig in, get right to it. Uh, Today, we would like to welcome Mr. Tim Delaney. Tim, welcome to the show. Wow. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be here. It's Um, great to have you. Yeah. And this month, we've been talking about all things Tomorrowland. Uh, One of the things we talk about that uh, I see you cite as being a major influence in your creative life are the uh, Tomorrowland specials on the Disneyland TV show. These shows are really amazing. And a show like Man in the Moon got so much right in regards to what was coming in space travel. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what these shows meant to you coming up. Well, I, I, I bring this up in every time I discuss it, uh, every time I have these discussions, primarily because it had such an enormous impact on me. And, and, and these shows really were impactful. Uh, but the fact is that it had an impact on me when I was seven years old. Yeah. And I, you know, I, am, yeah, I know it's kind of, I mean, you guys may or may not get this, but the fact is that I actually was born and raised in Glendale. Right. And, you not mean anything except that that's the home of Walt Disney Imagineering. And, exactly. And so, you know, uh, when I was seven years old, I was like everybody else. You know, television was kind of a novelty at those times, you know, in the, you know, 1955. You know, I mean, I know it had been for a while, but I mean, there was a lot of great programming. They had a lot of sitcoms and all that. But in terms of quality programming, Walt Disney's, you know, Disneyland television show was phenomenal. I mean, you know, it was like, it was quality television. And the way Walt introduced the show was very similar to the way he was going to introduce his part, which was like Tinkerbell comes out and tonight's show is from Fantasyland or Frontierland, Adventureland or Tomorrowland. Well, I was, fr- and I, I can't even explain why, but I was really, really a Tomorrowland kind of guy. You know, yeah. you know they go, Fantasyland, I'm like, uh, okay. <laughs> it's just, I mean, I don't know why. I don't know why. I just, you know, I grew up in Glendale. California, which was kind of a 1930s movie set, you know, it was a beautiful movie set, but I was like, eh, you know, I want to see something new. So when, when, you know, um, the first show, uh, uh, Man in Space came out and Walt introduced Ward Kimball, Ward Kimball was a producer of the show and Walt was, you know, Walt always considered Ward to be, you know, the only genius working for him. And Ward was just kind of a, you know, he was kind of really a straight laced guy and in the uh, show because he was not only a producer, but he was in the show and he introduced various segments of the show. And he also, um, you know, introduced Warner Von Braun and, and Willie Lay and, and just talked about 
you know, kind of all this whole kind of in, in what Ward um, uh, acknowledged was that this is not about science fiction. It was about science fact. And he made such a big deal out of this. So I was like completely hooked. And so they, you know, they had the usual typical kind of Ward Kimball wacky animation of mm-hmm. how space travel would affect you and, you know, in your, when you're in outer space. But more importantly, the show kind of transitioned to like real things when Bernard Brown Brown yeah. and he talked about the rocket and then, you know, Willie Lay talked about the, the physics of the whole process. And then the last segment, the last segment was this amazing, you know, uh, Max Fleischer kind of animation. I, I remember the Max Fleischer uh, Superman animation shows that were done in the, in the in like, I think the 40s or something like that. But it was this beautiful, highly yeah. styled. Yeah. And it chronicles this whole process from, from you know, finding out about the, or, or talking about, you know, the cruise and the rocket shift and the rollout of the rocket and the countdown and the blockhouse and then this launch. And then you go into outer space. And then they had this whole, you know, heroic kind of musical score at the very end of it, which was like, you know, the spacecraft landing back on Earth. Yeah. And I was blown away. I mean, I'm seven years old and I'm like, holy cow. I mean, you know, and, I, and I've said this and I've read this and I've put this in writing before. It's just like, I, I was completely blown away. And I told my parents, like, what, you know, is this true? Have we been to outer space? And their and their and their and their commentary had a almost a bigger impact on me. I was I said no, you know, my mom said something like, uh, you know, I think Mr. Disney's made this up. Right, <laughs> just made this up, just made it up. So the idea of actually taking a kind of an it, it, it was probably a concrete kind of thought process, but animating it in a film where you could actually just understand it. And it had this impact on me because it created a visual storyline that made sense. And this is this whole theme that I'm currently, I, I actually currently work on a big project of my own right now, which is about creating visions. And the way you want to lead people is to create a vision. And there's something compelling about, you know, I mean, you, you can create a vision in any way. You can be a writer. You know, I was, I had a very, very long great friendship with Ray Bradbury and Ray and I would talk, you know, quite a bit (laughs) about, you know, not about his stories, but rather how he wanted to kind of be a city planner. And we would talk about things and, and, and I thought that was impactful. So his writing was a story, but, but other people, you know, create illustrations or whatever, but what the idea, the power, the real power of creating uh, a vision is to create something that's so compelling that other people get on board and they lead forward to make this all happen. So as I began working, you know, when I started working at at Disney, I was actually really compelled about, you know, this whole thing about future and future stories and Epcot and all that. And I was actually kind of interested in like, well, how did this whole man in space thing go? So it started with learning about it and how they did it. And I actually was working on this uh, on, when I was working on Epcot. You know, we went to, I was sent to Washington. We went, there was a big space seminar that we went to, I w- went, went to. And, and, uh, and the, and the, uh, I'm trying to imagine the man who spoke is a very famous guy. I'm just blanking on his name. But anyway, that night in Washington, I met Mrs. Ver- Verna Ron Brown and I told her. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. 
<laughs> well, I think that he realized, uh, you know, we talked about this a little on our episode, you know, what you were saying about visualizing a thing and conveying it to people and, you know, inspiring people with that vision. I think Walt and Von Braun were on the same page as far as knowing how to sell an idea through entertainment. Yeah, and I and I think that the amazing thing about just, uh, I mean, Von Braun obviously, you know, had a vision and he was looking for somebody that people, he was looking for people to actually make that vision, you know, come to life. I mean, they weren't going to build it right away. I mean, Disney was going to build it. But he could actually bring the storyline. Right. You know, and, and that's, you know, that's what Walt was. He was a storyteller. And the and there are two incredible things that happened, in, in my opinion. One at the time, and when I heard this story, because I was still working, I, this is when I was investigating when I was working at Disney, because you know you don't know much. I mean, there, there was no internet in those days. You had to kind sure, of like yeah. all this stuff out yourself. But you know, the one thing that was kind of like the the first cherry on top of the sundae was the story of. Uh, President Eisenhower calling up Walt Disney going, I saw your show last night. I thought it was fantastic. And I got a bunch of scientists to try to get us in space and beat the Russians and get them out there. You know, let's get our, our, our act together. So I loved your show. Can, can you send that show to my scientist? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine the president of the United States going to Walt Disney saying, can you, can you send that to, because right. it was, so much that it was a big revelation, but it showed a vision that said this could be done. And one, it's so com- it's so compelling when you see a visual thing that that when a it's credible, b it seems to make sense, and there's a need for it. So I mean, this is kind of the thing that I based my entire Disney career around, and my career since then. On. Right. I mean, that was a time where the American public had no clear vision about how we would make it into space. Uh, especially in the near future at that time. So, I mean, it was so useful. Uh, and like you said, it's the music and the production and everything about it is is really in harmony. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and think about the time in the 50s, the early 50s or the mid-50s, I should say. We were coming out of World War II. You know, there were rockets that were being talked, you know, launched into, into London. It was a terrible, kind of a terrible thing. Uh, but now we were talking about kind of the fifties having that kind of positive energy and everyone's going to have a better life and all that. And so that's what they, so, so now suddenly Walt saying, well, you know what, we're going to take this technology and we're going to use it for the good of mankind. All right. So that, that was, I think the essence of it. And then there were two more shows, you know, man in the moon and Mars and beyond. And I think, I, I think those were really good. I have to say that I'm not entirely sure that they were as quite as compelling as the first one, but right, right. Um, but it still told the story. So I'll end this little piece here on, um, on the cherry on top of the cherry. So the cherry on top of the cherry kind of relates to what you're talking about tonight is when I was, uh, when I was doing all the concept, a lot of concept illustrations and things like that for Epcot Center way back in 1977. Uh, that's when I started on this stuff. I had the opportunity to work with Ward Kimball. And so that was like my, yes. I came from, you know, from wow. the guy on television to this goofy guy who I was, <laughs> <laughs> the world of motion pavilion for Epcot Center. So that was kind of like I, I, I came full circle and put the you know the cherry on the top. What did you ever talk to him about the shows? I did a little bit, but you know he also did a whole series of. I think he did some things. Um, 
he did some shows on his own where he was interviewed and he was talking about this. And I remember him, you know, Ward in the 1950s Man in Space, I was like a guy with a button down suit and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the, and the next time I you know, saw some of his, his stuff and I, we did talk a little bit about it. But, you know, this guy did so many things and he was so nuts. He was so I mean, in a good way, he was kind of crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And like, you know, later, later episodes, and this is where I draw this kind of um, this, this spirit that there was really behind it. You know, here he is in his kind of crazy shirts with bright colors. And he would say, this was about science fact, hmm. not science fiction. You know, yeah. this is a guy who had a full size locomotive and train <laughs> tracks in his backyard. Yeah. He, he was a train guy. And that's where he and Walt really connected, you know, so he was, but he was like, I know these guys were real characters. I have to say that I, I of all the things, you know, that I feel really extraordinarily fortunate about. And I didn't know it at the time. I, I kind of hinted and I kind of like realized a little bit, but it wasn't until years later that when I started in 1976, all the original designers there, Herbie Ryman, you know, mm. Mark Davis, Clyde Coates, Ken O'Brien, Exitensio, Sam McKim, God bless Sam McKim. Uh, you know, all these guys are great, and I just learned so much from them. So I felt so so fortunate. You mentioned a lot of the uh, aesthetic of those uh, Tomorrowland episodes, and I think the uh, the Fleischer Superman. That's a great comparison that I'd never really thought of before, but they, but I can I see that. You're familiar with that? Doesn't look. I mean, it has. That yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's something we talked about. Um, Something I always say is that they they did so well that they, their art direction for that space stuff was so great. It really kills me that Walt never really did any hard sci-fi after that. Of course, you know, he wasn't around too much longer, but, you know, they were so good at it. I would have loved to have seen a movie in that style. I think I could push back on it. I'll tell you. There's a little movie called 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But I will tell you, and again, I learned this post, but you know, post years later because I found I met what worked with all the people. But a Harper Goff's design of the Nautilus for Twenty Thousand Leagues is one of the greatest science fiction vehicles, right up there with the Millennium Falcon. I mean, oh, that's absolutely. Totally. I don't absolutely. know if you, can you see over my shoulder way. I was I was eyeballing that before. Yes. <laughs> so uh i don't know um probably in 2009 the company was thinking about doing another Twenty Thousand leagues movie and uh and so we we, we met with a director and they're working the stories and so i designed i designed i mean first of all i mean my connection with Twenty Thousand leagues is kind of overwhelming you know the fact that i built i'm the only one that's ever built a full-size nautilus interior <laughs> right okay <laughs> and then i worked on the movie and I and I designed a 21st century Nautilus, which I streamlined it, and that's that's what the rendering is back to you can see. Okay, to circle back to the Tomorrowland shows about the storytelling, yeah, you know, we we talked about when we were discussing it how closely the structure of these shows mirrored how the original Epcot attractions, which would be what 20 years later or more, yeah, um, were laid out. It starts off with this sort of comedic look at the history followed by a like a real vision of the future, a science factual, like you said. That seems to me a really effective way of storytelling because they used it in the shows. It worked great. 25 years later, you see the same thing 
And, uh, you know, in a world of motion is a great example of that. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, um, you know, sometimes they got kind of a slave to that. You know, I mean, I, I, there was a point in time where I was, you know, thinking, why are all of our shows going from cavemen to space shuttles? You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it really was, you know, but, 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 but I do believe, you know, something, you know, a show like Horizons, in my opinion, was more like Magic Highways, which which I really, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Magic Highways. You know, that was a that was another one. I mean, it was interesting how in Magic Highways what they did is because that was more kind of like society and technology and all that. But you know, like these, oh, you will be able to go on these, you know, super streamlined highways that go, you know, not only across the desert but in the ocean and all that. But also, he talked about machines that would bore holes right through the side of a mountain and melt these things through or (laughs) machines that would actually build bridges. And as they build the bridge, the bridge actually support supports this, you know, massive machine, you know, and, you know, people living in these houses, like, you know, the Monsanto home of the future, which again, I loved, but all these things, you know, your house, they had these big screens, you know, big screens for television and downstairs, the car was being maintained by robots and, you know, I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I have to love all that stuff. You know, oh, yeah. Horny as hell. But I, but, but the fact is, but, 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 and again, I'm going to tell you right now, the, the, the reason I find it, I found it compelling is the same reason I find it compelling today. I think people need to see and hear and view positive future experiences. That's yes. what I, 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 we are so inundated with negativity and the press is killing us and all that. I just like, somebody has got to say like, and that's what I'm doing. I'm actually working on making a positive future. I'm not a, I'm not a future dystopian kind of guy. Like the whole world is going right, to, right. I'm just not, I'm just, I'm, I'm just not, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, why, why not take the high road? Well, I mean, we mentioned off air that, you know, the, the you know Epcot really having shaped my career and life, I think we grew up in that period of I mean the eighties was this way, um, of like really positive future like you'd read Omni magazine and it would be so exciting about what was coming and then you'd go to Epcot and it was it it was real I was like this is really what it's going to be like. Well, you know what's what's interesting about that. Uh, what I find interesting about that is that, you know, at that time, I'm sure, you know, we talked about highways that went across the country and, you know, you nonstop to, from here and from New York to LA or whatever. Uh, but I think that there was also this kind of magic of saying someday, you know, we'll be all communicating together and we'll have this internet computer thing where we're all working with this and phones can call everything. And you're like, wow, the dream is always better. Fundamentally, that's the basis of all of all ma- of all world's fairs, right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually show technology there. So what happens is that now we get like, okay, now, oh gee, we can get these computer boxes. Okay. And we can get on that internet machine and we can talk about ideas. And what happens is that it just kind of doesn't fulfill the prophecy of, of positiveness. It kind of mm-hmm. stirs this thing. And I, and I, and believe me, I'm not, I'm, I, I'm, I'm no interest in talking about politics or beliefs that people have, but I'm just saying, you know, there's something interesting about when, you know, 
the prophecy of the future, does it fulfill, you know, the needs of humans? You know, there's, there's a real psychological and, and sociological impact on what I think that these things are about. Yeah, that's a great point. I agree. Absolutely. I want to talk a little bit about Disneyland. I mean, you grew up in Southern California at the time you did, uh, you got to see Disneyland grow up with you. We talked to, to Scott Gerard, who even saw the construction site progressing growing up in Anaheim. And like you said, you were up in Glendale. I was wondering what it was like to watch the park progress through the years. Walt was around guiding its development. Well, I mean, there was nothing in the world like, Disneyland. I mean, I have all these photographs myself there in 1955 and with my family, you know, and, um, and it was like nothing I'd ever seen before. You know, it was like, I mean, somebody dedicated a whole theme park and, and the fact, I mean, and, and it was so amazingly and so incomprehensible in a way that not only was this a park, cause we, you know, we've been to parks before and, you know, I used to, you know, I was in, Cub Scouts or Boy Scouts or whatever, we'd go to these uh, movie ranches up in Chatsworth, you know, uh-huh. Oregonville. And this is, you know, up in Chatsworth is where a lot of the the old Western stars used to live. And, you know, um, and it was like, so you, so you could see some of these. And also being in, in, in the Hollywood area, you know, you, you would see sets and stuff like that. But a Disneyland was like, this was like really organized fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, and that's, and that's kind of what you, you know, you just weren't used to that. And so, um, and also the fact that um, I had an older, I had an older brother who was three years older than me. And so, you know, we would, we would, we would lose our parents as fast as possible. <laughs> and, you know, cause you know, you weren't going to get lost and, um, and it was safe and it was, and it was just like so magical. And I have to say, I, I started writing this uh, story about this, my experiences at Disneyland, you know, and, and the thing that um, completely, um, I mean, the whole experience was unique. I mean, from the attractions to, you know, the heat of the day transitioning to the cool of the evening and all, when all the lights would come on and the twinkle lights and the yeah. fireworks, you know, this in the 50s did not exist. And it was like, Holy mackerel, this was like amazing. I mean, it was just amazing. I mean, it was it was overwhelming. And then, and then, of course, I would always like, I would always try and convince my brother. I was kind of like, hey, let's, you know, because I'm the little brother, you know. So I was like, you know, <laughs> but I was more kind I feel of you. savvy to this. <laughs> and I was kind of like, hey, let's go over to, to Tomorrowland. And when you think about that, that um the magic of that mission of uh, uh, flight to the moon mm-hmm. attraction, mm-hmm. you know, you go in and you go into that big round room and the screen that's above and below and, and you sit in these seats and end up vibrating and all that. Um, I have to say that I, years later, when I was working at Disney, I saw the original drawing that John Hench had done. And you actually, in John Hench's sketch, you went to this gantry and you went into the rocket and the rocket was, had the same show inside, but it was kind of a fatter squatter, you know, oh, wow. And, and I'm like, holy smokes, why didn't they do that idea? You know? Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. But yeah. I don't, do we talk about my feelings about the story? Cause I think the story is, you know, it's just amazing, you know, and it's amazing in comparison to what the later shows, you know, what the later stories were, where you actually go into this room, you know, it's a circular room and all these seats were looking at this horizontal screen and a, and a screen above and below, but you know, they were flat. They were, you're not looking right at the screen. You're looking kind of 
above and below, but you could look down at them. So it's showing the rocket lifts off. It lifts off from, from Tomorrowland at Disneyland. And so, you know, when the vibration starts and the whole room vibrates and the seats vibrate and they have these little actuators in the seat and all that stuff. I, if, and, you know, kind of it's it's kind of corny, but you kind of like it because you like I kind of like this being corny. You know, yeah, right? and as, yeah. as a kid, you like buy into it like, you know, it's not real, but you buy I like you buy in. You go for the ride. Right. Yeah. You go for yeah. And so, and so we're, you know, we get in the rocket and now there's a countdown and all these, like, you know, I, I it, the sets were probably not as, they're probably not, they were probably not as good as what I remember them to be, but they were effective, right? Yeah. You know, it's like probably just flashing lights. And then the narrator, and I don't know if it was Winston Hibbler or I don't know, whoever the heck it was, you know. So we're leaving Los Angeles, you know, we're, we're launching out of Los Angeles or out of Southern California. And it mentions like, okay, well, there it is, the smog-filled skies of Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm like, okay, listen, you know, we're gonna really go for real on this. And so then we head to the moon. And then the, you know, as you're as you're heading, they're telling you the story, and you can see the earth on the lower screen getting smaller and the moon getting bigger. On, on the upper screen, you know, and then, you know, then becomes this whole magical thing. You get to the moon and we go around the backside of the moon. And I got to tell you, this is where, and again, I don't, I, I kind of like, I loved it at the time, but I didn't realize the power of storytelling until years later when I really thought about that show because the show got changed out, right? Mm -hmm, right. So they're talking about like it's going on to the backside of the moon from the earth. You know, we've never seen the backside of the moon. It always kind of travels, kind of travels, you know, with with us, you know, the gravity connection. And they shoot these rockets out, you know, these flares or whatever it is. And it hits the impact of the moon, you know, and it throws these big shadows across the craters. <laughs> and then there's this kind of geometric pattern. And then the narrator's like, could this been an ancient civilization? Hmm. <laughs> That's you great. are hooked. I'm telling you, you're hooked. And it's corny, but you are hooked, right? It's like, could this have been? So then, you know, you go all the way around the moon and we're heading back and we're heading back to Earth. And you're like, wow. And you feel, and, 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 and I think this is a really important story point is that you're kind of filled with the wonder of all this. And then we come back and we land and, you know, the rocket looks like the TWA rocket that was in Tomorrowland. <laughs> right. And it settles down and we launch at the end of the ride. Okay. And it's like, wow, that was really cool. Guess what? It was worth going. Right. That's yeah. So then years and years and years later, after in 69, when we landed on the moon, they changed the show. Right. So it was like Mission to Mars. So anyway, so we yeah, fly to Mars. That's what we came up with, with that's uh, right. Mission to Mars. That's right. That was our, that was our era. So, so, so here's the comparison. Here's the comparison. So you start the same show, you launch, and then you go through some kind of spat magic, you know, space warpy kind of thing of mm -hmm. Mars. And then you get on Mars, you're landing going across the surface of Mars, and there's this huge storm, and it's like dangerous, and we have to get back to Earth. Yeah. And you get out of the show going, what the heck did we go to Mars for? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it like, always felt like a ripoff. It was yeah, like, well, we truly. didn't get to go to Mars. So, so on one, you were captured by the imagination. Could this have been an ancient civilization? Or you go to Mars and there's a big storm, we have to go home. Like, yeah. 
storytelling of telling yeah, yeah. it's like sorry guys your vacation's canceled you got to go home <laughs> i mean i was just like wow like didn't you see the first show i mean you have to capture people's imagination right. and that's yeah. what all of these things were really about what were some other things about that early you know pre-1967 tomorrowland that captured you well, let's see what they had. First of all, I have this great photograph. I don't know if, did I send you any of the photographs that I have of myself at Disneyland? No, I'd uh, love to see them. <laughs> uh, well, I'll send them to you. I'll send them to you. I, I have some. There were, as a matter of fact, I, I didn't see them until many, many, I was already working at Disney when I think my sister said, oh, here, you want to see these? And I have like 10 photographs. And the thing that's shocking is that my parents actually took pictures of us at Disneyland, black and white photos, right? Yeah. And I have a great photograph of my brother and I in the Astro Jets. Oh, okay? cool. And the reason that's so compelling is this is when it was on the ground. And, you know, it was the original, it was the original uh, Tomorrowland set. And uh, so I ended up, you know, I built the Orbitron in Paris, the same Orbitrons at Disneyland, mm-hmm. I did Hong Kong. So I built these things. And at the time, um, you know, they're just kind of roundy rides, but I, had to, for Paris, especially when I did the Orbitron there, and because we had this kind of, um, you know, great European visionaries theme that was going on. So I did this kind of, you know, it could be Leonardo da Vinci, it could be Jules Verne kind of mechanical planetary model thing. So, so that one, which is the same one you see at Disneyland, the entrance to Tomorrowland, um, that, that was kind of like, even though it was a simple round ride, you know, it kind of checked off the three categories that I always thought was really important. Number one, it was an icon. It mm-hmm. represented what the land was. Number two, it was a kinetic sculpture, which when you do Tomorrowlands, and because all Tomorrowlands nowadays have these big giant boxes, yes, the attractions happen inside, then there's no animation in the land. Okay. Right. So, so I said I need something in the middle of the land to do all this stuff. So it became, you know, and you know, it was it was an icon. It's, you know, it was an all, all, you know, it was like a big major deal. It was a kinetic thing, and it was a ride. You actually wrote it. Okay. Now, for me, in '67, when they did the Tomorrowland at Disneyland, you know, it was like you had the rocket jets on top of where the people mover were. Uh, you know, the people mover track, which is above you. You had the monorail, you have the skyway, you have the submarines. And it was, you know, and I could probably, they had, they had the boats. Um, Autopia. Autopia, yeah. So Tomorrowland at that time was a land on the move. Everything was moving. And of all the things that I really took away from, you know, in terms of what, you know, I did, I did um, how many, I, I worked, um, I, I built three space mountains. I did two. I mean, I did Hong Kong and I did uh, Disneyland Paris. And I worked on the Disneyland uh, Tomorrowland. And I worked on concepts for Tomorrowland with with George Lucas, Lucas when he was you know coming in to work with us. Um, but every one of them, in what I don't lands in Disney parks, you can chisel this in concrete, and I you know you can believe it or not. Lands in Disney parks have to have visual animation. You know, Amen. It, 
We it agree could, completely. <laughs> you, you know, I don't care if it's the Mark Twain or the Columbia coming in at Disneyland or Splash Mountain dropping down. And I mean, not only it was the it was a primary reason for Disneyland Paris when I did the Space Mountain there. I put that cannon on the side of the building. I wanted mm-hmm. people to and catapult it up the side of the building. That's what I wanted. And I got it. And it, you know, we had the cannon recoil and steam came out and everybody looked at it and it made the guest part of the show. And you have to do that kind of thing. You, know, you just have to do it. I mean, it's just, you have to make these places, the place itself. I mean, you can talk about theming and storytelling and placemaking, but they have to be animated. This yes. is like, put this into your, into your, into your guidebook. This is please. Yes. <laughs> I mean that I totally agree should be like one of the top, I mean, tip top commandments. And I mean, I think that 67 Tomorrowland, any, it's almost impossible to find a bad picture of that Tomorrowland because there's so many vertical layers of motion yeah. and there, I mean, you've got the skyway, you've got you, every, there's so much stuff. And uh, it's all moving, and it just absolutely looks incredible. I, I want to talk about, you know, you mentioned you joined WED at a time when, you know, all these legends were still there. It was a time when a new generation of Imagineers were coming up uh, that would shape things for years to come. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk about what that was like to kind of meet those two streams together and uh, if you had some folks that helped you find your way in Imagineering of that old guard. Yeah. Well, it was, um, it was an amazing, it was an amazing time for me. I, uh, the way I got my job at WED was um, I, I went to art center college of design. Okay. Yeah. And well, it was in Los Angeles at the time, you know, it was a long time ago and it was a real, I mean, when I, you know, I I, I, I kind of tinkered with art in my life and I didn't have any art training in high school. But then when I got into college, I, I got fed up with that. I said, I'm going to I'm going to start learning a discipline in art. So eventually I got the art center and the art center and I had an instructor there and I graduated out of art center. And three years later, I get a call from an ex a teacher, a teacher of mine from art. Center. And he said, ah, he works for WED, this place called WED Enterprises. And he's head of the graphics department. And I you know, wanted to know if I wanted a job there. And I was like in the middle of other things. I had my own business. And I was like, eh, no. And I said, no. <laughs> I mean, well, I, you know, as I tell you this story, you're going to understand why I said no. But, um, but, it, but essentially, I was like, eh. And then six months later, I was kind of interested and they weren't. And then six months after that, we mutually got together. And so I, I started in... Um, in, on uh, June 1st of 1976. Oh, wow. Okay. I mean, I know dinosaurs were walking, ruling the earth at that time. It's a big, a big time, a big, mm-hmm. a big moment. Well, it was interesting because, you know, when I told people like, well, I'm working for this, you know, I, I got this job and I started working at this place. And from the second, it was a little bit like when I went to Art Center. The second I walked in, I went, oh my God, this is the place I belong. And then when I walked, <laughs> you know, on Flower, after I actually could find it, you know, it was a very secret place. I mean, there was no name. This doesn't say there's there's this enormous campus. Uh-huh. And to this day, I mean, you can see now it kind of looks like you know, kind of everybody knows this Disney. At that time, there were all these industrial buildings that were just like, you know, non uh, nondescript. I right. mean, I, I, the only sign that gave an indication 
is that when you went down Sonora, turned down on Flower Street, there was a little park, there was a parking lot next to this giant building. And on the parking lot had a regular street sign, right? A regular kind of street sign or a kind of a cartoony Disneyland on a smaller scale. Mm-hmm. And it said Wed Way. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. right. That's right. And all, you know, it didn't say Disney. It doesn't say Imag- there's no name that says Imagineering. None. Zero. Okay, zero. So anyway, I started working there, and I was working in the graphics department. And what I was doing in the graphics department, I was doing all their illustrations. You know, if it, like for example, I did a whole series of paintings on the uh, for Main Street uh, when Sunkiss came in uh, on Main Street. I would do the exterior renderings and the interior elevations, and it would show the graphics for Sunkiss sponsoring, you know, this particular, you know, juice bar, something like that. So anyway, I did that. And also I started actually working on real projects. Uh, They were building Space Mountain at at Disneyland at that time. And there was a whole uh, arcade going in called Starcade. And I did all the design work for that. But that's not, and I'm going to get to your, believe me, I haven't forgotten your question. But I, I will tell you that, a couple of stories right off the bat. Number one, I tell people I work for this place called Wed Enterprises, which was Walt Disney's personal design company. <laughs> and they built Walt Disney World. And, you know, people are like, you work for Disney? Is that is that that little cartoon thing in the valley? <laughs> oh, gee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. You know, but this is different. This is Walt's personal company that he actually started, you know, to work for Disneyland. So, oh, oh, so you work at Disneyland. Do, do you like go to work and you wear a, like a pirate outfit? I'm like, <laughs> no. So close. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, okay. So think about those days when people are like, like, like I scratch your head going Disney and look right. at what the Disney juggernaut is today. You know, I mean, that, I and I saw that happen. And that's yeah. um, so, so what I did is that in those days, you know, uh, every day at, at 10 o'clock, 10 to 10, 15, uh, we'd have a break. And there was another one late in the afternoon from three to three 15. It was a break. We worked eight to five and then lunchtime. And I would spend probably 90% of my time there. Um, when I was working, when I didn't have to be at my desk drawing stuff, I walked and I made this whole circuit and everything was on the 1401 campus. Mapo was there, which was where all their heavy construction was where they built animatronic figures. Um, you know, we had the model shop there, special effects. And, all that. and I had this little circuit and I spent every available moment going and in, in, in going to every department and, you know, um, talking to the people and hmm. seeing what was going on. I remember going through Pelican Alley. Pelican Alley is where they would assemble animatronic figures. And here are all these guys in white coats and transition, you know, like looking at a hallway and there's, you know, 20, there's 15 animatronic figures. And these guys were all building. This. It was like a scene out of a science fiction movie. And I'm like, holy son, holy cow. <laughs> so then, so then, you know, another day I would be, Change my it, it, oh well I, I will tell you <laughs> after I would do this for several days and I would just like walk through and I'd be like because I was starstruck I was like wow 
this is amazing, you know? And so you kind of learn to see and they people like, get used to seeing you and like, like, Hey, so, you know, and this one guy comes up to me one day and he goes, Hey, uh, Hey, you want to see something I've been working on? I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, I was like, I was a boisterous kind of person. I was just so fascinated. Right? Yeah. And so I walk up to his work desk there and there's a, there's a cloth hanging, you know, it's draped over what obviously is some kind of a head, you know, an animatronic head. And he pulls the cloth off, you know, and he's like, yeah, I've been working on this on my own, you know, and he picks up a microphone like this and he starts talking. And as soon as he talks, the mouth would move and sing. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm like, and this guy, I'm like, I won't say his name because he started his own animation business. <laughs> <laughs> he was a technician there. He was just like, yeah, hey, I had this idea. These guys used to tinker and they used to try figure out how to do this stuff. And then other days, you know, I'd walk into the sculpting lab where Blaine Gibson was the master sculptor there. And you're surrounded yeah. by 200 heads, whether they were pirates or presidents, you know, and, <laughs> uh, and they'd be sculpting and Wayne, uh, actually Blaine was, you know, he'd have these pictures of a president or some, you know, character they wanted. And, and then he'd be sitting there sculpting in his white lab coat and very calm, very genteel kind of gentleman. You know, he was just, he was just amazing. Or then you'd go into, you know, the, the, the buildings were all kind of uh, industrial buildings. So there's, there's nothing romantic or exciting about these things, but in a sense, they actually mimic a lot how um, uh, uh, sound stages work in a studio. Mm -hmm. You know, are just big empty warehouses, but they can turn them into anything, right? So that's all they were. You know? So I'd walk in, I remember walking into the special effects area and I walked into uh, this bar. I walked into a bar, you know, I mean, you know, we're <laughs> in this set and you could see the bars there and, and the, you know, the glass backing. It looked like an old Western bar, you know, and the thing was up and running. And you could sit at the, you know, you could sit at one of the table or sit at one of the, the chairs of the bar. And, and if you did, you look in the mirror and have one of those old kind of mirror glass things. And, and, you know, and a ghost would come up into the mirror and then disappear. Or they had the, oh, cool. They had the, they had the uh, ship in a bottle where there'd be a storm and the ship would sink and then come back again. And, all. and they just had it running. They must have had some presentation, you know, and I'm huh. like, you know, and this is Yale Gracie who was head of it, and Roger Brogy Jr. And, I mean, Yale Gracie was, I mean, these guys were, these guys, I, you know, I, I, I've written this this thing that I'm working on. I've actually written about these days. And that's one of the reasons mm -hmm. why I crossed the line quickly. But I said, and it, it, in the, the title of the chapter was kind of exploring, exploring imagineering and finding gods. Mm -hmm. And that's what you found. Or, or you walked into the model shop. Who does not love model shop? Right? Oh my gosh! Yeah. They're, they're Disney models, and this is when they used to hand make these, you know, beautiful, beautiful models. We were, they were just working on some concepts for Epcot at the time. This is the very beginning. This is in '76. So, and then you know, my best days were to go upstairs in the concept design department, and Herb Ryman was there. Wow! Yeah. Said, Mark Davis was on the Gold Coast. Exitensio and and I, you know, I I was like, you know, I you know, the funny thing, and I will tell you about this is the thing that, that that I found to be most interesting about this is that at the time, no one knew who these guys were. Nobody knew right, who were. right, right. Nobody knew Mark Davis. Nobody knew Clyde Coates. Nobody knew uh, Walt Paragoy. Nobody knew. <laughs> 
Sam McKim. You know, nobody knew Colin Campbell. Nobody, nobody knows them, okay? But the world knew their work. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. Davis did every scene, you know, did all the scenes for Pirates. You know, I mean, there's like, these are amazing guys, you know? And so, so here's the real thing. So I, you know, um, going back and stepping back and telling you, like when I went to Art Center, Art Center is a very... Uh, demanding art school. It's a very commercial-oriented school. I mean, it isn't like... It's very demanding, okay? You have to work all the time, right? So I was just working all the time. So here I am going through Imagineering, and I'm looking at this place, and there were these rumors that, you know, there was this whole thing, there was this kind of stirring that they were working on a new project called Epcot Center. Mm -hmm. And Epcot Center was going to be this kind of Walt's dream of a future city, but it was going to be more kind of World's Fairish. And I have, I'm a big World's Fair fan. I went to the 61 Fair. I went to the 64 Fair in New York. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Yeah. What happened is that I, um, the 64 Fair, I, you know, I was, I was uh, in Boy Scouts, I think, at the time. And so I was going to go to the, the uh, Boy Scout Jamboree in Valley Forge. So coming from California, uh, we it was it's the 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 Boy Scout Jamboree is one week long, but what we did is we went there and went to the East Coast. Our troop went there and we spent a few days in New York and we spent a few days uh, in Washington D.C. before we went to Valley Forge. So this this completely blows my mind. I'll be honest with you. They and I was one of the older ones. I was I was one of the older kids. You know, I, I was probably I think fourteen something like that. And so they would assemble us at nine o'clock in the morning, give us $5 and say, tell us to check in at nine o'clock at night. <laughs> wow. Those were the days, man. Those were the oh, days. Yeah. So me and my buddies, we went to the world's fair. Oh, that's so that's cool. Amazing. Can you imagine? I don't even know how, how we got out there. I mean, obviously we had to get it. And like, and, and, you know, and I remember, I remember going to buy places and looking at hamburgers for 50 cents. I'm like, Oh my God, that's the most expensive. <laughs> that must be an amazing hamburger. <laughs> but everything in New York was super expensive, you know, but it was all relative, you know, like, yeah. you know, I don't know. So anyway, so the 64 words fair, you know, where is where kind of Walt got his whole, you know, I mean, small world, great moments with Lincoln, you know, um, the, the Ford attraction. Did you see any of those? I didn't, I, you know, the ones I really, I, I, I think I, I went through the Ford one because it was kind of going through the future stuff, but um, I didn't see Lincoln. I mean, most of these times, you know, it was a one day at, at a World's Fair and there were like a billion people there. You just couldn't yeah, right, I remember right. walking the grounds, you know, but, um, you know, it was, it was, we were kind of, I mean, for 14, we were a little bit rowdy. You know, the other kids, they had, <laughs> we were just like on our own. Can you imagine saying, letting kids in New York? <laughs> oh, I, I know. Think, I can't, I still can't believe it. Um, so anyway, uh, so, so, so anyway, the reason I'm telling you all this is it, is it in the comment about Art Center working all the time. So, so literally for uh, my first year, I'd work all day, you know, at Imagineering doing my graphic stuff or whatever. And, um, and then I went home and I worked on a new portfolio every night. And I, and I said, well, I think I could do more for this company. So I worked on this thing for a whole year, <laughs> and uh, 
So I went to my boss one day and I said to him, uh, you know, I think I could do more for the company. And they're talking about doing an Epcot and all of the guys like Herbie and Sam and all the guys who did the illustration, these guys were great artists. And they were like, like, like Sam McKim did some of those beautiful watercolor renderings you've ever seen. And he happened to be a child movie star. He was, did old Westerns. He was, he was a kid, you know, and, um, and I love the sandwich is great. I mean, I, I really love these guys, you know, um, but, um, but they weren't anybody, nobody was like real futurist, you know, no. Yeah. So, uh, so I went and worked on, you know, scenes or market, you know, architectural scenes and settings and all these drawings and all that. So I, after a year, I, I went to my boss and I said, you know, I think I could do more. I really would love to show my stuff to John Hinch and Marty Sklar. So he's like, yeah, okay. You know, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't a great <laughs> enthusiasm, but I was like, yeah, okay. You know, but I didn't care. I mean, I, I you know, I've been working, I had been down at, you know, Disneyland working on Space Mountain because we put the Starcade in and they were finishing that up. And, and one of the other guys, you know, George McGinnis was a big designer for Space, uh, for Space Mountain at Disneyland. And he did the whole launch port there, which I thought was just like spectacular. Yeah. You know? Anyway, so I set up this meeting with John Hinch and Marty Scholar, brought my portfolio in and to the EDS conference room and so I started showing stuff to them. And I go through his art and I just told them, you know, really, you know, this is what I really love to do and all that. And suddenly Marty kind of looks at me and he goes, uh, don't you already work here? Um, <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. But I think I could help you on this Epcot project. You know. So uh, they say, yeah, okay, yeah, sure. So whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and I and the man who was the art director, who was the art director for Epcot, is a man by the name of uh, John DeCure Jr. Uh, John DeCure, his father was a very famous art director, art director in Los Angeles. I mean, he was he he was the art director for Cleopatra, and he was the art director for Hello Dolly, and uh, the only man who broke 20th Century Fox twice. So. Um, <laughs> So I showed him my stuff and he's like, well, okay, you know, but we're just kind of getting off the ground. And I said, great. You know, I said, I, whatever, I'm just offering my services. This is what I do is what I love to do. You know, I give my man in space and, you know, magic highway speech and all this. So, so and I, you know, nothing really happened for about two weeks. And then I went on vacation I came back on vacation. And as soon as I came in on vacation, my boss, you know, he calls me and he goes, uh, uh, I hate to say this, but I'm going to have to let you go. And I, from imaginary or from wed, you know, I was like, oh, okay, you know, all right. It was a good run. Fine. You know. So I got out of his office, walked over to my desk, and I had done a whole series of, 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 of uh, travel posters from Space Mountain. I, pinned, I just walked over to my desk, set everything down. I mean, I, I took everything off the walls and, and, I, and I just put them under my arm and I walked into John DeCure's office and I said, they just let me go and I don't want to leave and I can help you. I think, I think I can help him. So he's like, well, you know, I don't really know. So they let me go. Oh, my gosh. Never go on wow. vacation. I think it was Eddie Sato who said, never go on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it sounds like Eddie, you know. But uh, uh, so anyway, uh, so they so I go through the whole checkout thing. They, they, they gave me two weeks severance pay. I went home. One week later, I get a call. Will you come back in to work? And, you know, it was the uh, Bill, what's his name? 
I can't remember. He was one of the kind of overall Disneyland art, art director, old, old time art director. Mm-hmm. So he goes, well, we're thinking about bringing you back, but we're not raising your salary in any way. That's okay. It's okay. (laughs) So um, they did. Moved me upstairs in the concept design department right next to Herb Ryman. Oh, wow. And I, I just, I got my drawing table out. I got all my, all my paints and I got the stuff out. And so the John DeCure Jr. would come in and he'd say, like, I need this point of view and I need this point of view and I need this point of view. And I learned, and I learned to paint, you know, from Herb Ryman, not, not his style because Herbie would come in with a, you know, a beautiful shirt with an ascot and be wearing a, a, a dark blue velvet jacket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sit there with this For me, I had paint all down my arm. I had <laughs> right. I was. I didn't care. I didn't care. And I sat probably for at least a year, and well, maybe longer than that. And I, and I, um, you know, I just, I just drew and painted. And um, and I have to say, I recently we were doing this whole thing on Epcot, and uh, down at USC, and I and I showed some of my artwork. And, uh, and the, <laughs> actually, when they opened it up for questions, the first two questions were level at me, like, what did you start with? How did you start with? And for some inexplicable reason, I'm going to tell you this flat out, I have no idea why I know how to do this, but I can look at a site plan and I can just draw in perspective. I, mm. I, 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 don't, I don't know why I have the skill. No one in my family knows how to draw. I mean, my growing up, I don't know why. I just, I have this thing about architectural design that I just know it's right. And if you look at my stuff or you look at my, my Disney stuff, I always show here's the concept rendering and this is what we built and they almost match. And, and yeah. I do not, I don't think I have a superpower. I don't know what it is, but that's all I do. And that, and that's what I did. And so um, when I showed these paintings down at USC, as soon as the first ones came up, there was a whole gasp that goes through the audience. And these things, the drawings aren't very good, but what I did is I had to learn how to paint fast. And I went not down to, and they have a whole, um, in the model shop, well, connected up the warehouse. They have this whole area dedicated to art supplies. But what I did is I went over to the maintenance department and got a house brush, like a house painting brush. <laughs> and what I did is I just did these big giant stripes right through the artwork and then hit details on them. Because I was, there were paintings that I, I was actually showing paintings that weren't even, ha- they even have done because they would say, well, you have this idea can you do this? And then I would do it. I get halfway through it and say, stop, stop, throw that away. We're yeah. going to do it. It's idea. You know, and it was, it was constantly like that, but I, I loved every segment. I worked, you know, I must've, I, I literally did hundreds of paintings, hundreds of them. You know, I know, I know that Disney has 1200 of my paintings. That doesn't have digital ones. Wow. Holy moly. Painting, you know, illustrations. You know? Well, it just I mean, seems like the Epcot project more than any other had, was it because they were trying to get sponsorships or what? It just seems more fine art concept stuff was done for this park than well, anything the else. The technology for imaging just wasn't there. You know, you, you know, a lot, and that's one of the reasons why the model shop became so strong at, at, at Disney because they don't, they weren't, you know, you don't have SketchUp and, and, you know, Enscape and, you know, all the other digital services you see today, you know, yeah. and that, today but you had to just draw it and i and i could just draw i mean i i again i i 
I don't, I don't say that with, I, I, I say it with a sense of reality to it. I don't know where, I don't know how, it, how I, I don't know why I have this skill. I mean, I, I, it's kind of weird for me to say that. It sounds like I have some superpower and I don't mean that, but I, I can tell you <laughs> my success, the key to my success. And I'm going to tell you right now, the key to my success on doing all artwork and, and I'm talking, I mean, I was a producer. I, you know, I, I have to do a lot of the art, you know, all the stuff I did for Paris was when I was doing it. I would, I'd go to work all day in being meetings because I was running projects with teams. And then I'd do all the artwork at home. But I was just used to working all the time. I mean, you look at my, this, I mean, you're in my studio now. I mean, this is like, this is, what, this is where I live, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but I, I, um, I just would do the work. And what I was going to say is I, I could, I could say, um, when you're in the creative design business, your job is to create um, images that allow people to make decisions. So what I would generally do is I would present things, whether it was especially with Eisner and Frank Wells and that whole administration, but even earlier than that, um, you know, you create something and you go, this is what I think it's going to look like. It's not, you're not just creating a, a place, but you're, you're creating the experience. Right? And I would say 99% of the time I was successful. And when I say I'm successful, it doesn't mean that we went forward with it. Mm -hmm. It means that I provided an image or a story or a scenario that allowed management to make a decision. Sometimes, you know, eyes would go, that's great. Let's do it. We're going forward. We're going to, we're going to do what he, what, the, what he just said. That's what we're doing. Or they go, that's not what we want at all. So that made a decision. What I hate is going into meetings where people are like, well, it could be this, it could be that, and I don't know. And then people are like, okay, well, meeting's over, let's all go home. And no one decided on anything. <laughs> this happens that, all the time. That never happens. What are you talking it about? <laughs> you know, and there are people who are really good at it, you know. I mean, really, really great at it. You know, Eddie is great for that. He gets whether he does his drawings or you know, you've got other people or whatever, you know. I mean. Eddie, Tony Baxter, you know, I mean, the people who really got stuff done, you have to kind of know the whole process. Now, whether you're doing the artwork like I did or you have somebody else do it, but you're directing it, it doesn't matter. It, oh, the only thing that matters is how to move projects forward and getting them, you know, going. That's, that's, mm -hmm. that's really the key. And the more abstract you can be, you know, the better it is. So let me tell you this one story. This was completely amazing. And I wish I had the artwork here to show you. You know, I mean, I, well, I do, but I, I'd have to show you. Um, I got this call when I was doing, you know, in my just locked in my cave, just, you know, pushing stuff out the door. Oh, and oh, by the way, while I'm thinking about it, and the, the, the one of the things that I truly treasured would be I'd go off to lunch or I'd go on a break and I'd come back and I would see a little note or a tissue paper drawn over one of my one of my things not drawn on my painting mm -hmm. but over and i've been looking at it and i'm like that herb rhyme in <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> he would come in and he would draw things and we had this ongoing thing for years about space dogs and space dogs would be like they'd be pointing up something and the space dog would make some comment you know about my artwork or something oh that's great herb, was, i just wow. herb, was so great he was just great. And he would tell me the inside stories about Disney and Walt and all that stuff. 
Anyway, so one day I get this call and said, like, oh, we're going to do this big giant. We, we, we need to do this big. It's a big space pavilion. And you're going you're gonna to love this because it kind of relates back to my mission, uh, Flight to the Moon story. So, <laughs> so uh, John DeCure Sr., I told you the big art director there, he was brought in, he was going to be brought in to do the space pavilion. And the concept was going to be a vertical uh, imagine this, a vertical circle vision. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I told you they had screens above and below. Now they're going to do a whole circle vision. And so I'm like, and they're like, oh, yikes. And so somebody had an idea, but I had to paint this. I mean, I had to make it look like a real place. So they said, but before we're going to go too far, you have to go tomorrow morning. You have to be at Disneyland at six o'clock in the morning. And we're going to have a test at the, um, at the Circle Vision Theater, and they're going to run a star field. Oh, wow. And I'm like, yeah, well, how's that going to work? Well, you just you just go to Disneyland, okay? It's 6 in the morning. Get Be there. I'd be there by 6.30, right? Okay. So I remember going in, going to the backstage, walking through what is kind of like, uh, kind of like through Bear Country now, through New Orleans Square and all that. There was no one in the park. In the park, it was like one of these spring days. It was so beautiful, you know, and I'm like, it was like, I kind of stood there as I was going to the Circle Vision Studio or Circle Vision Theater in Tomorrowland. I was just thinking, God, you know, this park is just like, it's a beautiful park, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so I go over there and there are all these people, all these people standing around, including Ron Miller, who was the president of Walt Disney. Wow. Okay. All right. Oh, and so then they had the special effects guys and the film production guys, and and it's all everyone's kind of all bundled up and trying to find coffee and you know. So. Anyway, so they go, okay, listen, we gotta we gotta get this test going. We gotta get this test going. So here's what we're gonna do: we're gonna run a star field, you know, on all the screens, all nine screens. Yeah. <laughs> so like, yeah. So, so like, so when you go into the theater, what we want you to do is lay down. <laughs> <laughs> so you know the handrails come up and it's a you know it's a it's a big looping handrail uh-huh. you know, so you can sit you can lay down and i was like well this is pretty cool i mean this is this is kind of what i expected you know this is my all my dreams came true with imaginary because everything was as was as nuts and crazy and not organized and not <laughs> it was just nuts right? <laughs> yeah so I climb up, you know, I'm a young guy at the time. This is like a million years ago. So I'm climbing up and I'm laying on this thing and the handrails are going across my back, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm looking at, and I look across to the side and here's Ron Miller, all six foot five, you know, ex Los Angeles Ram football player guy, president of the Walt Dis- Disney Company and Walt Disney's son-in-law. And I'm looking at this going, this is this is crazy. This is really crazy. <laughs> so anyway, it's interesting they had him there for that. Yeah, you know that you're exactly right. I, I I was shocked that he was there. I mean, I don't know what motivated him. I don't know how anybody got him out of his like whatever he did. But uh, I like Ron. Ron. Ron ended up being a really nice guy. He wasn't the right guy for the company, but he was a nice guy. Yeah. And uh, so I thought, well, this is nuts. So the funny thing is about this, and my big takeaway about this was that if you had heard about this concept about a, a vertical uh, a circle vision, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, you're going to sit, you know, it's like you know, your two sides are like this or the circle vision, like right like this. And you're like, uh, you know, if you thought, 
if you thought this is never going to work, okay, there was that school of thought, or, hey, this is like a really cool idea. So we did this test, and whatever you thought it was going to be, the test confirmed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You said it's never going to work. You walked out, and everybody said, looked at each other, and went, "You see, what did I tell you?" <laughs> yeah. So, well, I got to know what what you thought. Did you think it worked? Yeah. No. No one would say that. Like I just told you. Like you know they go. Well, what do you mean? Like, I told you it would never work. I said, no, 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 no. I thought it worked great. No, no, no. I told you it wasn't going to work. No, I thought like, I was just like, you know, okay. So this is kind of the, it's kind of the balance between, you know, what, uh, what the creative process is all about. And that's kind of the thing that people don't, don't understand. You know, you kind of, like I said, you have to draw from your own experiences and, and, um, you know, um, and, and, and at that time, it was it was kind of like this is like you know, Imagineering really started out as just a bunch of goofy guys who had ideas and said, "Well, yeah, let's just try this." Yeah, you know? right, right. And, yeah. and then it became more science and all that. You know, when I started, there was there were 450 people, and then by the time we got done with Epcot, there were 3,000 people. And then they had to let you know, 90 percent of them go. Yeah. Um, but, um, and you know, but, um, so anyway, I ended up doing this giant painting and the painting is about, I don't know, a little, maybe a little less than five feet across. I had to use that. I used to, I, I loved still to do it. I love painting really big stuff, mm -hmm. but at that time there was no way to kind of like, you weren't projecting any artwork. It was like, you had to put it on a wall. And when you go into like theme parks, conference room, or some of the other big conference rooms, you know, if you put it like a, a little, you know, 11 by 17 sketch up on there, it's like, it's like looking at a postage stamp. You know, you had to do these giant paintings, you know. Um, so that's what I did. I had to paint everything. You know, I mean, you're just painting stuff. You just start and you do it. I, Herbie did that. You know, I watched Herbie did that. And, but he had just a, you know, he, he he's the one that kind of taught me, like, get a big giant brush and don't ever, you know, Marty Scolari used to have this thing, like, the most, the most uh, frightening thing is a blank piece of paper, mm -hmm. well, uh, which I never really bought into to a certain extent but i understood also what he was saying and but i did it my own way i just i never liked a white you know board so i would just paint something you know <laughs> herbie would just like paint these just big you know he'd he'd gesso the whole board and then he'd throw paint on it and then he'd start painting on top of it it's yeah. like a middle ground so what happens you paint you put a big wash across that's middle ground and then you go darker and lighter and then it just then it's it takes the the pain away from painting on white surfaces, you know, but well, he anyway. gets bolder and bolder. Like when you look at his stuff, like as he got older, it just got bolder and bolder. Like some of that late period stuff, like stuff he did for Paris and for Indiana Jones is just wild. Oh, it's, it's great. I, you know, I, his paintings for uh, Tokyo Disneyland. Um, I mean, I'd sit here and he'd be, he'd be talking to me about something, you know, and, and, and again, he'd hold, he'd hold the end of a, a brush. Let me see if I can, oh my, where, where's my, He'd hold it like this, yeah, mm. and he'd be talking to me, and and he would like do a, a thing like this, and there would be a whole crowd there. <laughs> like, do paint people, or, and you know, but Herbie had a lot of you know. Again, this goes back to what people, the, the experiences, and what the what it, it was. It, it, here's the thing of, of all the things, and I, I think one of you guys mentioned mentioned it um, you know, in terms of the not. 
you know, kind of the lack of technology. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Epcot, in terms of its spirit and its goals, was to be about the future. But the development phase was definitely, and this is what I miss more than anything else about what Imagineering became and what it is, is that all the technology and everything, the imaging and all that stuff was really old school. It was people drawing on paper, mm-hmm. yeah. models out of, you know, not laser cut, their hand cut stuff. And it was really the, the crafts and the artisan, artisan uh, quality of what the parks were all about. You know, it, it, um, I, you know, I don't know if there's a, I, I don't want to get into the, in my old age, you know, <laughs> I, you know, I don't care for that, but I do believe that, um, and I still do it now in my own work where when you work on concepts, I'd still draw a lot of stuff uh, by hand, you know, I'll draw like, just get a bunch of ideas out there. Yeah. Well, I think that it just feels more Disney to do it that way and i mean we've talked to people in the past about you know doing what um what eddie sada calls clicktorian architecture it's like when you're doing it from like a vector drawing template versus when you're doing something by hand and it has you know you can really i don't i don't know make make it work in a way that feels authentic to whether you're doing something historical or even something futuristic, you know, I just think it has that Disney feel maybe just because that's what we all grew up seeing, you know, as this is what it is. But I, I also think it's a legacy from animation. Right. Right. Where they would, you know, do stuff. Um, you know, I, uh, relating to this subject and relating to those early days with those great, amazing guys. Um, I knew Claude Coates, because he did, he, he used to do a lot of dark rides, you mm-hmm. know, and it, not particularly sophisticated, but, but you know, but kind of the way Clyde Coates would do things. And, and he did a lot of stuff. So it was really cool. And I was going through kind of the art of Disney one day. And there was this beautiful watercolor, I think, from Snow White of a, of a, a lit candle. And I'm looking at this and it says, drawn by Clyde Coates. And I was like, wow. Hmm. Wow. Because yeah. I never saw any of that. You know, when they were the <laughs> one thing, when they would do it at Imagineering, they would, you know, or, or wed at the time, you know, it was, you know, you didn't see all the people's talents, you know. I, I, I mean, uh, John Hench's drawings that he did in the early days in the 50s, like his early drawing at Space Mountain. Um, yes that is a wild piece yeah yeah i love those you know cantonary kind of roof things um i think they were fantastic Uh, i I loved it i mean i I actually did my first uh discovery mountain the three the 100 meter version of it was kind of meant to mimic that kind of thing i mean i never understood his his uh the trains coming outside the building Uh, none of that made sense but yeah uh, because you couldn't you actually not only could you not do it it would just destroy the show on the inside but 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 the drawing was great the drawing was great amazing yeah i thought was really really cool Well, that wraps up part one of our interview with Tim Delaney. Michael, uh, just some amazing stories there and so much more to come. I 
I know. I love these guys who can talk not only about their many, many achievements, but also, you know, the generation before them that they were able to work alongside. So it's like, you know, you get a two for one story wise. It's just unbelievable. That's right. And, you know, Tim, like so many of our guests has a, seems like has a real passion for, you know, the Disney history side of things, which is always great for us to hear. Absolutely. It's always fun when you speak to someone who kind of knew how special it was when it was going on (laughs) and kind of like took mental notes about everything that was happening. And uh, man, I'm just, you know, so thankful Tim taking the time to share it all with us. Absolutely. And like I said, we'll be back for another uh, installment of the Tim Delaney hour with us. And uh, uh, you you (laughs) have stories aplenty ahead. So uh, decades worth. Um, Stay tuned for that. Michael, this is a time in the podcast where uh, I ask you if anybody signed up for our Patreon lately. Yes, uh, we this month we have two people to welcome to our venerable Patreon. I'd like to welcome Joshua and Joseph. Both of you, thank you so much for supporting the show. They'll, of course, be signing up for early access to episodes, nice little packet of swag, and, of course, at the silver level, joining us for our monthly live stream where we get together with a bunch of pals and uh, talk about things related to this month's episode, show some images and some video and just have a good time. So uh, thanks guys. And thanks to everybody who continues to support us. Yeah. We want to thank you all. Thanks to new folks for signing up. And if you want to join that Patreon, the address is patreon.com slash progress city USA. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter. Michael is at Progress City USA. I'm at Jeff G. Crawford. And uh, email for those of you who still do that, you know, generation whatever doesn't do email anymore, I guess. But a uh, podcast at Progress City USA for, you know, the dinosaurs. Email like us. I'd love, yeah, I'd love, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I'm on my email all the time. I'd love to hear from people. Me too. I'm a big email guy. Uh, so yeah, please be in touch with us there. If you'd like to really get the cherry on top, you can leave us a review and a rating on the uh, podcast platform of your choice. Those are all the ways. Yeah. I mean, we, we've had a couple of reviews lately, so keep that up with, it does help us out. So we'll be back very soon. Part two of Tim Delaney and wonders beyond this year, 2022 from all of us to all of you take care We'll see you soon.